didn't show up. You get your special donuts. Um, and connect and, and help make Hope Brooklyn happen. So if you are currently not on a team, would you hear my voice and consider joining one? Also on that connection card, you can put your name and email. Um, you can say, I'm interested in teams. Uh, whether you, however you fill it out, as we exit service at the end of today, there will be welcome team members with baskets. Drop it in there, and we will be in touch with you with the list of teams and how you could serve. Thank you so much uh, for helping us make it happen. We say the whole family makes it happen, and we couldn't do it without you. So thank you. This is also the part of our service where we bring our tithes and our offerings to God. You'll notice we don't pass a, a bucket, um, but generosity, financial generosity, is still super important to us. We're in the digital age, so we do it a lot digitally now. Um, it's our way of signaling to God that we're not our own providers, that all our abilities, all our gifts, all our networks, everything which in our generation and, and in our society is kind of pulled together in that, that net worth column, um, all of that is a gift from him, and it's to be used as he wants it. So he's always asked his people to part with a portion of that um, through the vehicle of his local people, which is be the church, um, as a way of signaling that. So if you'd like to participate, there are a couple ways listed to the sides of me. We have Venmo, we have Text Give, uh, we have old-fashioned generosity box in the back of the auditorium, um, which you can drop in an offering. Or what we always like to encourage is if you go to our website and follow the prompts, um, you can set up a regular gift online so you don't have to think about it. It's a part of your budget, and it helps us as leadership of Hope Brooklyn to know that this is something that we can budget for um, and be financially responsible and steward well what God is bringing. So thank you so much for your participation. Uh, we couldn't exist without it. Um, tables launch. Who, who went to a table this last week? Yes, they just launched this last week. So if you're not part of one, you're not too late, but you're almost too late. So also on that connection card, say, hey, I'm interested in joining a table. Uh, I live in Borham Hill. I live in Carroll Gardens. Um, Thursdays are my best night of the week. Market there. We'll be in touch with you and we'll get you plugged in to tables, which are our small groups of Hope Brooklyn people that meet for a meal throughout the week and include our friends into it, where we practice the art of hospitality and celebration. Um, well, today, we'll speak a little bit later about brunch. We're going to be eating out today. However, um, to, to the singles in the room, where are the singles in the room? Yeah, you're like, I'm not shouting for that. Um, but uh, you could, if you heard last week's sermon, you would shout for that. But anyway, I digress. Go listen to the podcast. Um, we're having a singles lunch. So if you're interested in meeting some cool people, um, just making some friends. They're, I think uh, they went to, oh, Black Forest, Brooklyn. Oh, that's so good. It's German food. I love it. Uh, it's just right out the doors on Smith Street. So Tiffany Owens is going to be heading that up. So after service, go outside, find Tiffany, find a group of very bubbly people, um, and, uh, and go eat some awesome food. Do that. And then, yes, there they are. Now they're shouting. I love it. Um, and then the last announcement I have today is we're going to be kicking off our next cohort of Roundtable. Now, what is Roundtable? Um, Roundtable is uh, sort of the space for those who want to, to go deeper and define the relationship. Maybe you've been coming to Hope Brooklyn for a period of time, um, maybe a short period of time, but you're like, hey, I really love this community. I like what it's about. I like its vision. I'm vibing with them. And you want to know, are they vibing with me? All right, that's a very fair question. Answer is yes, we are. Um, sign up for the roundtable. It is our version of partnership. Um, we continue to work on it. 
It is now, we used to do four modules, now it's only three modules. So three Sundays in March, in the month of March, after service, um, we'll feed you, we'll have, we'll have uh, about two hours, we'll have lunch, and we'll talk about three things. Who we are as Hope Brooklyn, who you are, and how you've been made, and then where are we going and how we can do it together. So what you can expect from us now that you're sort of like a round table graduate, you sort of define the relationship, you're a partner of the church, and what we can expect from you. And now you're like, hey, I'm in New York for a period of time, why would I sort of um, pursue partnership with the church? Well, here's what I would challenge you on. This is a city where the, 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 the reigning narrative of this city is come, consume, and jet, right? That's what this city exists on. E.B. White, in his famous essay, Here's New York, he described uh, New York as like locusts descending on it, consuming it, and then leaving. That's just the way it is. What would it look like if we flipped that script? What would it look like is if in your time in New York, because you might not be here forever, but if in your time in New York, when you finally left, you actually left New York better than it was than before you got here. That you actually left a legacy, that you planted a garden in Brooklyn that will outlive you. So that'd be really, really cool. And in fact, uh, throughout all the Bible, you see that's the promise and the offer to, his, to God's people, wherever they are in the world, is to leave a garden, to leave it better. So I would challenge you, even if you're here for three years, be fully here. Be involved, be invested, commit. Powerful things happen when we don't just participate like from the outside, but we actually jump in and commit. So sign up for the roundtable. If you want more information about it or you want to sign up after service, out the doors to the right is the what's next table. There will be a welcome team member and a laptop and you can sign up. It's three Sundays in March, March 1st, March 8th, and March 22nd. And it's from two to four, so right after Sunday service. So we'd love to see you there. With that, will you join me in prayer and then we'll jump into today's topic. God, you're a... Your love, your love astonishes us. And, and we confess, we actually can't even appreciate how great your love is. We can't appreciate the depths that you've gone to be with us. But even when we can't appreciate it, we still say, not for a moment were we forsaken. You were here in this place. Lord, I don't know the hearts in this room, I don't know where they came from. I don't know what they think about you, but you do. And so I pray even right now that they would sense something in their, in their stomachs, that they would sense something flutter in their chest that would signal that there's more to this world than they imagined, that there's more to your love for them, your presence, than they imagined, and that as we turn our eyes to you, as we turn our eyes to your son, Jesus, the visible image of the invisible God, that we would see, that it would illuminate, that it would just blow our minds with how great, how strong, how humble, and how powerful you are, God. We worship you and you alone, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray, amen. Well, if you're joining us for the first time, we just kicked off a new sermon series that we're going to be um, uh, going through, through the month of February and March, that we are titling Lies We Love and How They're Killing Us. 
we are focusing this year on discipleship, which is a fancy church word that essentially means uh, apprenticing to the ways of Jesus. What does it look like to really get to know uh, the words, the character, the beliefs, the loves of Jesus and allow him and our relationship with him to form us in such a way? Um, and, and in that vein, we want to sort of contrast it and say not many of us are as far down the road as we, as we wished, as we liked. And perhaps the reason for that is because we're receiving narratives uh, from our society about how relationships work, about the, uh, what the good life is, that perhaps we suggest they're lies we love, we love them, but they are killing us. So they're, they're, we love them unto our death. And we're wondering what would it look like to hold those up to what God says about them and, uh, and maybe, maybe trust him, see if it leads us to help. And so the lie we're taking on today, bump, 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 that was a very fast bump. I should have done it slower. I don't know why I did that. Bump, bump, bump. The lie we're taking on today is that love means agreeing with you. Love means agreeing with you. That if I really love you, if I really love you, I'll agree with what you say. I'll encourage your dreams no matter how unrealistic. I'll cheer you on as you become your truest and best self, whether I think it's for your good or you're bad. Now, did you feel that? That was the air in the room deflating. Because <laughs> Anna was like, you're gonna go there? I was like, babe, this Sunday I'm gonna have to be Russell, the millennial killer. I'm just gonna have to do it. I'm gonna have to do it. Now, maybe some of you are confused because you're like, wait, isn't that kind of love? Isn't it love to encourage people? Isn't it love to cheer people on for them to become their truest and best self? And yes, it is. So how do we parse this out? It's super complicated. It's complex. And I think if I want to illustrate what I'm talking about, this modern sense of love, the, the best example I can think of comes from a really popular television show that when I said, Anna, I'm, I might use this as an example, she goes, you should not do that because they have fierce fans. Uh, it is, of course, the show The Bachelor. Any Bachelor fans out there? Just a few? Okay, good. You didn't want to say it because I'm going to use it as an illustration. But there was a clip, uh, I guess in the recent season, between Hannah P. and Luke or, or Peter. I'm not exactly sure. I get them mixed up. Um, but they're, they're talking about love and relationships and sex. And, um, and it's just, it's, it's, it's a lot. There's a lot going on. But they're also professing Christians. And so there's this one conversation where Hannah P. is talking and, um, and it's sort of like this climatic moment, and it's meant to be very triumphant. And she goes, she goes, you know what? I had sex, and Jesus still loves me. And everyone applauds. <laughs> and I want to say that that right there, that statement, is the essence of the modern notion of love means agreeing with you. Love means agreeing with me. Because there's a lot in that statement. I had sex, and Jesus still loves me. There's a lot that I'm not going to touch. What I do want to touch today is what does she mean by love? What is Jesus' love in this equation for her? Does it mean that Jesus agrees with her? Does it mean that Jesus disagrees, but he kind of looks the other way? Does it mean he disagrees, but he doesn't voice it because he doesn't want to hurt Hannah P's feelings? Does love mean that we can do whatever we want? What is love? What is 
love, both for our society and for God. Now, a little history for us. Um, If you grew up in the 80s, 90s, or early alts, which is most of us in this room, the teaching, the primary teaching we received about love was pretty much one form, self-love. We, we heard all the time about loving yourself, that you can't fully love others until you love yourself. And uh, just a couple examples of how this manifests and how we grew up. And this comes from Gene Twinge, who's a psychologist and has studied generational differences extensively. And she compiles this list. Tell me if some of these don't look eerily familiar from what you heard growing up. Uh, are you worried about how to act in a social situation? Just be yourself. What's the good thing about your alcoholism, your drug addiction, your murder conviction? I learned a lot about myself. (laughs) Concerned about your performance? Believe in yourself. Should you buy the new shoes or get the nose ring? Yes, express yourself. Why should you leave the unfulfilling relationship, quit the boring job, tell off your mother-in-law, respect yourself? Trying to get rid of a bad habit? Be honest with yourself. Confused about the best time to date or get married? Love yourself before you can love someone else. Should you express your opinion? Yes, stand up for yourself. And I added this one. Life boring and are you a little sad? Treat yourself. (laughs) Right? Tell me that this isn't exactly what we grew up with. And in all of these, the premise is that the most important thing I can do in any and every situation is what is best and truest to me. Love yourself. Here's the other thing we saw in our growing up years. We saw self-esteem curriculum explode across society. It was all about loving yourself just because. Books, programs, uh, TV, participation trophies, self-science. It was all about knowing and loving myself just because. And here's the thing. It worked. According to some studies in 2012, and it's only gotten higher since then, these are graduates of college in 2012. 61% of 2012 graduates believed they were above average in leadership ability. We are producing a lot of leaders. 76% thought they had a superior work ethic than their their peers. 65% believed they had superior intelligence. They were very stable geniuses, guys. But what we found, which is great, is that high self-esteem does not lead to high performance or to, to, to um, success. In fact, it's the other way around. High performance leads to high self-esteem. And this is a bit of an aside, but I thought, found it very funny based on our context. Do you know the ethnic group polled with the lowest self-esteem? Asian Americans. Do you know the ethnic group with the highest academic performance, lowest unemployment rate, and highest median income? You're two for two. Perhaps, and because I know many of my friends in here who are Asian Americans, perhaps the love that they received was a little too conditional, a little too you better perform and then you're loved, but maybe there's a median, right? Maybe there's a middle ground. So we saw self-esteem curriculum explode as we were growing up, excuse me. And then the last thing we saw is a shift in our thinking about humans and especially children. Thinking about humans and children as fragile. And I got this from a book called The Coddling of the American Mind by Jonathan Haidt, who's an evolutionary psychologist at NYU. And he got this idea from a guy named Nassim Nicholas Taleb, 
who's a Lebanese-born statistician who wrote a book on risk called The Black Swan. And in it, Taleb discusses three things. He discusses fragile systems, resilient systems, and anti-fragile systems. And fragile systems, he says, are like China teacups. China teacups. When you break a China teacup, it's broken. You can't put it back together. It's done. Resilient systems are like plastic cups that you give children. They are resilient. They cannot be broken. But they also don't change, right? They stay the same no matter what. But anti-fragile system, of which these are most of the, of the important systems of our world, economics, political, and human beings, anti-fragile systems require stressors. They require challenges in order to learn, adapt, and grow. If we try and protect anti-fragile systems from stressors and challenges, we end up atrophying the whole system, and it will slowly corrode and die. Like our immune systems, right? Our immune systems actually need to experience sickness. Maybe not right now with the flu that's going around, but they do. They incorporate an incidence. Our antibodies learn how to fight it off, and we've come out of it stronger. The issue, as they point out in the book, is that we shifted from thinking of children as anti-fragile, that we need stressors and problems and setbacks to help us grow, to fragile, that they need to be protected from all sorts of um, bad things. If not, they'll break. And you see this, because it came out in like the 80s and the 90s, you see this in college and universities through the rise over the last seven years of safetyism and safe spaces. As they point out in their book, safety was primarily throughout history used to talk about physical things. Are you safe? I mean, are you physically safe? Are you out of danger? But it sort of uh, expanded with the last five to seven years of stories on college campuses of speakers being disinvited, or even if speakers are invited, the creating of safe spaces, with the idea being now safety is attached to our emotions. And just to be clear, I'm not saying all of this is bad or a negative thing, we're just pointing it out because it'll help us out to understand love. But the idea is that if students are fragile, then they need to be protected from ideas, from situations that could break their emotions. But if they're anti-fragile, then they need to experience the stressor at a level that is appropriate to their development. So then putting this all together, over the last 40 to 50 years, there's been an explosion of training, literature, and counsel about loving yourself, about trusting yourself, about being yourself, and about everyone else celebrating it. There's been a shift in thinking of children as fragile rather than anti-fragile. And so in order to foster your sense of self-love, we must protect you from things, ideas, and situations that could harm your self-esteem. So in our society, love has come to mean that I have to agree with you because if I don't, I will pop your self-esteem bubble and I will trigger your emotional stress. You'll require a safe space to be protected from it so that you don't break because we view you as fragile, regardless of how true or how diluted the basis of your self-esteem may be predicated on. And so afraid or unwilling to push into uncomfortable conversations, 
uncomfortable situations, viewing the discomfort as being unsafe, or another word that is stretched, labeling the ones who is so discomforting as abusive, our society tolerates whatever one says feels best and simply asks they don't disturb each other's self-esteem bubbles. And that might not be a big deal. That's the thing. That's the truth. It really might not be a big deal unless we're anti-fragile instead of fragile. And if that's true, that humans, emotions, all of us are anti-fragile, then by not popping self-esteem bubbles, by not challenging and pushing into things, we're actually not leading to our health, but to our atrophy and decay. Exhibit A of the meteoric rise in anxiety, depression, loneliness, and suicide. Loneliness is a public health emergency now, guys. More dangerous than smoking cigarettes. So perhaps it's not working the way we thought. Perhaps it's not leading us to healthy relationships and healthy lives. Perhaps it's not really love in the deepest sense. But when Hannah B. says, I had sex and Jesus still loves me, what she means is Jesus is the overprotective parent who doesn't want Hannah B.'s feelings to be hurt with real talk about sex and identity and soul formation. And so he protects her feelings by tolerating whatever she decides is best for her. That is love for us in our modern society. And the question I want to ask is, well, what is love for God? What is his version of love that he offers us and then invites us into with one another? What does it look like? And I'm just going to take it straight to like Bible 101. For anyone in here who's maybe never read the Bible, you've probably still heard this verse from the John's Gospel, third chapter, verses 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever trusts in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever trusts in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn us, but to save us through him. There are two things I see in God's version of love. First, I see a world that God does not agree with. Sorry. I see a world that God does not agree with, and we know this because the Son, Jesus, came to save the world. I see a world in pain, a world that misses the mark of his intention in so many ways. And that's all sin means. When you see that word sin, what does it mean? It means to fail to, to reach the mark of perfect health, of, of perfect peace, of perfect joy, of perfect kindness. And we all fail in that in so many ways. I see a world, as it says a little bit later on in the third chapter, that loves darkness more than light. Because in the dark, I can do whatever I want, and no one can tell me anything. But when the light comes on, everything is seen. And we can see what's true, and what's false, and what's good, and what's not good. And when we look at this passage, when we understand love, God does not agree with everything about this world, and God does not agree with everything about you. I'm sorry. He does not agree with your self-destructive habits. The way you come home 
and turn on Netflix to avoid having to feel, feel pain, your substance abuse, you're sleeping around, you're hoarding money, you're cheating at work, you're lying. He doesn't agree with those things. He's not a fan of them. It's funny, like, those deep things in our hearts. Many of us, we, we talked about it. We just finished a fast. And how easy it was to give up one thing and to immediately replace it with something else. Like, I was talking with a friend, and, and she was giving up social media. And she found one night, even though she wasn't on social media, she had spent three hours or something on Airbnb without realizing it. <laughs> right? That's what we do. We substitute to still get... To, to, I should say, to not get at what really is going on down there. And God knows. And he doesn't want it. He's not, he's not in agreement with it. He doesn't agree with you. He doesn't agree with our habitual temperaments of self-centeredness, of laziness, of rage, or of paralyzing fear. He doesn't agree with those bursts that we probably would all call as wrong when poor customer service and we blow up or we blow up at our children, or we lie to our spouse or our friends. He's not in agreement with that. But he also knows that so much of that is beyond us, that we have a choice, but so much of that is, is deeper than we realize. I love the way that Al Walters, who's a theologian, describes sin. This, this inability for the world to really like fire on all cylinders, to really do well and take care of everyone. And this is what he describes. He says, the effects of sin touch all of creation. No created thing is in principle untouched by the corrosive effects of the fall. Whether we look at societal structures such as the state or family or cultural pursuits such as art or technology or bodily functions such as sexuality or eating or anything at all within the wide scope of creation, we discover that the great handiwork of God has been drawn into the sphere of mutiny against God. The great danger is to always single out some aspect of God's good creation and identify it rather than the alien intrusion of sin as the villain. Such an error conceives of the good-evil dichotomy as intrinsic, that is, as part of creation itself. So we, we identify something in the good creation as the source of evil. And we've done this throughout all of human history. This something has been identified as the body and the passions. That was Plato in Greek philosophy. It's been identified like as the source of evil, as the source of what's holding us back. As culture in distinction from nature. That was Rousseau in Romanticism. As authority figures in society. Psychodynamic psychology. As economic forces. Marx. As technology and management. Heidegger, existentialist. But as far as I can tell, says Walters, the Bible is unique in its rejection of all attempts to either demonize some part of creation as the root of our problems or to idolize some part of creation as the solution. What's he saying? He's saying you can't look at any one aspect, any one group, any one thing and say that's the issue. If I can just fix this, then it'll be fine. It's deeper than that. There is something called sin there is something called an enemy, as, G, or as Jay talked about. I almost called Jay Jesus. Maybe sometimes I see him that way. But there's, there is something called an enemy that has sowed seeds of destruction throughout all of the world, all of our hearts, that leads us to not be able to, to live in perfect relationship with God and each other, to not be able to love 
So we can't look at one thing and say that's the issue. But we can look at one thing and speak truthfully about it and say this isn't good. This isn't healthy. So in this world that God does not agree with, love first means we have to speak truthfully. We have to speak truthfully. And for you and me who are not God, because I dare say what you're probably hearing, what you might hear is you swing to the other end and you just see people pointing their fingers, right, and condemning. But God did not send his son to condemn the world. That's not what I'm saying. Speaking truth does not mean just lecturing and teaching. Perhaps what it means is less speaking truth and more seeking truth. Maybe it means asking a lot of good questions. Maybe it means the courage to push in and ask questions and listen, but not be afraid of asking one another questions, knowing that it might cause discomfort, it might hurt a little bit. Love doesn't mean telling off. It means listening. It means listening again. It means listening again. But it means keep pushing in. So that's the first thing I see. I see a world that God does not agree with, and love means speaking truthfully. But the second thing I see in this passage, I see a world that God is with. In all this pain, in all your brokenness, in everything that's going on, God still refuses to be separate from us. He still refuses to be apart from us, but he sends his son, he enters into our story, in order to be with us and make a way for us to know his love again. So love means being with. Love means speaking truth, but love means being with. Even if you disagree, even if you disagree, even if you know in your bones that this is not going to end up well for your friend, you're not going to leave their side. You're going to be with them as God has been with us. And if you do both, if you can speak truth and always be with and never let one of those fail, I'm going to continue to seek truth with you. But I'm not leaving your side. I'm not going anywhere, no matter what. Then we're getting somewhere closer to how God loves us. And see, here's the thing. As I consider like um, generational trends and the way the pendulum swings back and forth, Think of the spiritual life like a mountain, right? Think of it like a mountain. I think generations before us had an idea that love was conditional. So you have this picture of a mountain, a very pixelated mountain right here. Imagine that like God is at the top, love is at the top, and perfect peace, perfect joy is at the top. What we heard growing up about religion and all of its forms is if you want to know love, you got to do the things, you got to climb the mountain to get to the top, and then you'll be loved. Do stuff, and then be loved. And we said, that's not right. That doesn't feel right. Love shouldn't be a performance. And we were correct. It's not. Which is why the gospel is unique and unlike any other story. Because in the gospel, what we hear is that God is at the top of the mountain, right? That's where eternal life is. That's love. But love doesn't stay there. Love comes down to the bottom and is with us, joins us there. In Jesus, God sends his son. God writes himself into the story to be with us where we are, at the bottom of the mountain, full of all the things that lead us to unhealthy lives and lead us to our death, full of violence, full of all of it. 
He's there at the bottom. God is with us. But here's what you and I did and our generation did. We stopped there. We said, yay, God loves us. He's joined us where we are. Now we can all just stay here. To which God says, no, that's not what I'm saying at all. I've come down because you were never going to get up to the top. But we're not staying here. There's a mountain to be climbed. And I know the way back up, says Jesus. Will you come with me? And that's the question. If love is unconditional, and if God knows that we're anti-fragile creatures, then he's going to speak truth. He's going to come to the bottom of the mountain and say, I know you can't get to the top. Here are the reasons why. I see your heart, and it's not good. Here are the reasons why. And there are lots of great things about you, because I made you and I know you. But there are also lots of things that are holding you back from really knowing me, from really flourishing. But me coming to the bottom of this mountain is not agreeing that it's good that we should stay at the bottom of this mountain. It's because you could have never gotten to the top. I've come because I love you that much. I've given up the glory at the top of the mountain. I've come to you to pour out my love for you, to tell you that there is no stretch of mountain, there's no distance that I won't travel for you. Now, do you want to keep climbing with me? I can show you the way. It's relationship with God in Jesus which brings about the deepest sense of our validation and our love. Because Jesus challenges us to our very core. And when you've ever been in the presence of God, like really in his presence, you feel overwhelmed. You feel two things. One, you feel that you so don't deserve to be in his presence. That's, in a sense, that's God's presence revealing that there are things in us that should not be at the top of that mountain, that we're not there yet. But it's God saying, but you also feel, you feel that, and you also feel so, feel so unworthy, and you feel so grateful that his love would be this, this strong, that he would actually be with me as I am. And that's God being with us. He speaks truthfully, but he is not going anywhere. No matter what, he's not going anywhere. We say to God, we know we're in deep pain and the world isn't right. And he says, yes, that's true. And yet we ask, in spite of it, can we be accepted? And he says, yes. Now let's climb together. Which is why, friends, when we're doing it right, Christians know a love that the rest of the world so longs for. It's the only truest sense, it's the purest sense of love because it's a love that does not look away from the deep brokenness of this world. It's a love that can handle it, that can incorporate it. Deep, deep brokenness can incorporate it because it's a love that has joined us in that place and not been defeated by it. It's a love that went to the cross that went to the cross and absorbed all of it, took it on himself, and yet was raised to life three days later. This is how we know that this love is true. This is how we know that this love excludes no one because there is no one so broken, so jacked up, that they can't be in God's presence. The only one excluded from this love is the one who doesn't want this love, the one who excludes themselves. Everyone else can be a part. Everyone else, wherever they are, 
If you're willing to be honest, if you're willing to come truthfully and to have the light invade your darkness and expose things and know that the exposure is not going to condemn you, but it's actually going to heal you and bring you back to life, you can be there no matter what it's been. This is what we know. This is how we know the depths of his love because God ended his life on earth by hanging and dying and bleeding, bleeding out on a cross. He isn't just with us in like the same room, the way that we're with each other right now. He's with us in the sense that he has suffered the exact same things you have suffered and more. He's with you in that whatever it is that's at the core of your heart that is causing you the most amount of pain, he too has experienced that. And I, I ask you to try it at some point, maybe today, maybe later. So for me, I grew up, and I've shared this before, I grew up in hospitals a lot. I had a lot of physical issues. I had lots of surgery. So for me, one of my like core issues that causes, a, one of my core wounds, and that causes a lot of pain in my life is because I feel I'm afraid of lacking control over my body. I'm afraid of lacking control. But what do I see when I look at Jesus on the cross? I see a God who has no control over his body. I see a God in tremendous pain. He knows exactly what I've experienced. Or I should say, I've experienced but a bit of what he's experienced. Likewise, I grew up and I, I was rejected a lot. And so I have a deep pain and a deep fear of rejection in me. But when I look at Jesus on the cross, what do I see? I see a man who was rejected by his 12 best friends. Everyone deserted. Rejected by his people, Israel. Rejected seemingly by his own father in heaven as he asked, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, that's the point. This love that is with you is not just with you in theory, but it's actually gone through the exact same things you've gone through. Whatever it is in your life, abandonment, fear, uh, abuse, whatever it is, you can look at Jesus on the cross and see that he's experienced the same things. And he's not saying it's okay. He doesn't agree with it. But he is with you. He is with you and he's not going anywhere. And because he dealt with it and was raised to life, therefore, you don't have to be afraid of your own soul. You can receive that love through him. Jesus' vision of love is the only one that truly sets us free in the fullest sense because it deals with, it, it pops self-esteem bubbles, guys. Jesus is going to pop your self-esteem bubble. He's going to tell you things that are not okay and that are not leading to your help. And if you're not ready for it, that's fine. He's going to say, you don't have to. You're not ready to climb the mountain yet? Cool. I'm going to stay right here with you until you are. But I'm never going to shy away from the truth that there is a mountain to be climbed. And I'm ready to go once you say yes. He's with you. He's with you. Do what you want. He's with you. But if you really want to know life, you got to go back up the mountain with him. And what would it look like if we loved one another that way? What would it look like if we weren't afraid to, to step into those difficult places, to challenge one another, not from some position of self-righteousness, because the point is we all have that brokenness deep within us. We all are at the foot of the cross, equal equal 
We're all seeking truth together, but what would it look like to not be afraid of stepping in and asking questions and listening and listening and listening and listening and then going to scripture and saying, what does God say to us and praying together and say, you can still choose whatever you want, but by God, I'm not leaving your side. You can't get rid of me. You can't get rid of me. We all want that love, but it's gonna take a lot of courage and it's gonna take us realizing before we can do it with one another, it's going to take us realizing that God has already given us that love by joining us in what we've experienced on the cross. And I want to end with this. I'm going to invite the band back up. I want to end with a story um, of where I saw this love, this kind of love, this vision of love most clearly. So when Anna and I, Anna's my wife, when, uh, when we were um, praying and, and discerning, we, we knew we were going to move to the city about six years ago now, five or six years ago, um, five years, and we were praying about where we're going to land. We knew God was calling us to do ministry, but which church did he want us to partner with? And there's a church who's a really great friends of ours. Many of y'all know them. Uh, They're called Recovery House of Worship. Um, They're all over New York. Um, It was started by two guys, Edwin Colon and, uh, and Ray Ramos, his buddy, uh, they're from Brooklyn, and uh, they, they were actually addicts in teenage years. And so they got clean, they met Jesus, and their church really ministers to recovering addicts. And so we were, we were visiting with, with Edwin, and he took us to, um, one Saturday night, an NA meeting, a Narcotics Anonymous meeting, um, pretty deep in Brooklyn. And we walked in, Anna and I walked in, and... Uh, the first thing we felt was about 25, 30 people was just this rush of warmth. 25, 30 people, and maybe five to seven of them came up to us, complete strangers, welcomed us, shook our hands. One guy said, hey, can I get you a cup of coffee? It was overwhelming, overwhelming. And this, mind you, uh, in Brooklyn, in a borough that is experiencing gentrification, as we all know, And Anna and I were the only white faces in the room. So we weren't unaware of that. Warmth that just took our breath away. And then the the session started. And essentially all it was was people standing up, saying their names. Hi, I'm Russell. I'm an addict. And I'm celebrating. And then they would name a certain amount of time. Hi, I'm Russell. I'm an addict. And I'm celebrating three days of sobriety today. Hi, I'm Russell, I'm an addict, and I'm celebrating three years of sobriety today. Hi, I'm Russell, I'm an addict, and I'm celebrating 30 years of sobriety today. And no matter how much of the time, the entire room would erupt in applause. Three days, three months, 30 years. Awesome. Praise God. Well done. Well done. Just cheer and encourage. But no matter how much the time, they were still an addict, speaking truthfully to the reality, the depths of the brokenness that is within us, not avoiding it and not shying away from it. The most heartbreaking part of the time is when someone would stand up and say, hi, I'm Russell, I'm an addict, and I have to give back my time, which meant they had relapsed. You would feel an emotion, just swell of grief, move toward the person. You'd hear people say, that's okay. Don't stop coming to these meetings. You're okay. Thank you for being honest. 
And then the person would share in ridiculously vulnerable, raw, uncensored language exactly what had happened and how they gave in. And at the end, people would, they would applaud. They would grab their shoulder. They'd be in tears. Guys, love does not agree with everything. Love is willing to speak truth and enter in with open hands and on your knees. Not coming in self-righteousness, but not letting the person you love go a separate way because you're afraid of popping their self-esteem bubble, of offending them. Love enters in and hoping they'll do the same to you. And love doesn't move. Love is with. Love is with. Love is with. No matter what you decide, I'm not going anywhere. Nowhere. And the only reason I can do this with you is because I have a God who has done that for me. And no matter what happens in my life, I look back to the cross and I realize, oh my gosh, Jesus has already suffered that. Oh my gosh, he's already taken that. There is nothing in this stretch of this world that can separate me from his love. Nothing. Nothing. So I'm not going to be afraid of entering in with you as well. And what would it look like if we were a people who together with open hands and humble hearts spoke truth and climbed that mountain again? I know, and my prayer is that the type of love I experienced that NA meeting would just swell here in this space. That we would be known for that as well, as a people who do not shy away from truth, but a people who will not shy away from being with each other either. It's going to take hard work. And before we can even begin that work, it's going to take all of us knowing whether for the first or the hundredth time, that whatever you've gone through, whatever's in your heart, you don't have to be afraid. Because when you look at God giving his son on the cross, whatever it is, it's already on there. It's already on his shoulders. He's already experiencing it. Have you been rejected? He's the rejected one. Have you been forsaken? He's the forsaken one. Have you been abused? He's the abused one. Whatever it is, he's already experienced. So would you find that love first, and then would it lead you to love your friends and family in a way that models how he does it for us every single day? Would you pray with me? there's anyone in this room who's never experienced the love of God through Jesus and maybe you don't know what that means and maybe you're not sure of all the particulars but there's just like a rustling in your in your chest and your stomach I want to encourage you to make yourself available to Jesus right now what does that look like it might feel a little weird and strange, but in a second, I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand. And all the eyes are closed in this room, so you don't have to worry about anyone else. It's between you, God, and me. And the reason why is because when Jesus shows up, he says, hey, come follow me. 
But to follow him means you can't just follow him in your heart. You have to follow him with your body. Your body has to make visible what your heart is feeling. And so if you're here right now, again, between God, you, and me, and you want to offer, you want to take a step and say, God, I don't know all the answers. I don't know the depths of your love, but there's something powerful about this that I want to learn more. So I want to give you a chance. Would you show me what that is? Would you just raise your hand? Lord, you see the hands raised. So my prayer is for you if your hand is raised. That right now and this week going forward, as you consider the Jewish man Jesus bleeding out on a cross, would you put upon him everything you've experienced? And would you hear his words saying that none of that is too gross, none of that is too much, none of that is too heavy for my shoulders and my love. I see it. I'm with you in it. And I will love you through it. Be free with me and come climb this mountain. And for the rest of us in this room, God, it's so hard. We step outside these doors and we're told we're so afraid of saying the wrong thing. We're so afraid of offending people. We don't know how to be in relationship anymore because all we've ever heard is just love yourself. What does it mean to truly see each other and to surrender to people's words, to, to let them to sharpen us even if it hurts a little bit? Well, it means seeking truth together and being with each other. Show us how to do that. Right now, God, you can speak truth to us because you are with us. Let it fill us and give us courage to speak truth to each other and be with each other. We need you, Lord. And right now as we sing and respond, would you meet us in those broken places with the love that is only from you because you came down that mountain. You came down. You came down for us. That's how humble and how good you are. Thank you. Would you stand to your feet now? And we're going to respond to this great love by singing a song together.